0: Welcome back to the Grace and Common podcast. We are four friends from four different countries and three continents that come together every week to talk about theology, culture, and public life, particularly from the neo-Calvinist perspective. I'm Corey Brock and I'm joined today by James Eglinton and Grace Sutanto. And we're going to have a conversation today about Christ and culture. All right, guys, it's great to see you all today and to be back with you again this week. As uh, you know, and anybody that lives on Twitter knows very well, um, the past week or so, there's been an immense amount of talk about, to put it in the most generic sense, um, the question of how Christ relates to culture. And that question has come up through a controversy surrounding um. Tim Keller and his legacy and his approach to culture as what's been called third-wayism. And I think one of the reasons that we wanted to come together today and talk about it is because a lot of the issues that are being discussed are really, uh, even though not too many people are recognizing this at the moment, birthed from the ideas of the Neo-Calvinist tradition. And so the the concept of a third way is really a child of the orthodox yet modern sensibility. And the relationship between Christ and culture and how Keller approaches it is largely a product of a theology of common grace and antithesis and understanding the relationship between those two things. And uh, at the heart of it all, I think the question that we want to ask is, how does the Bible uh, affirm and critique the world at the very same time? And what does it mean to be biblical in the midst of all this? But to get us started, I think maybe just it's important to highlight the fact that Twitter has really been the playground for this discussion. And it's been uh, prompted through an essay that was written by James Wood at First Things, uh, using an understanding a sociology of culture developed by Aaron Wrenn. And, uh, but most of the discussion has happened on on Twitter and and a few articles that have been written. Um, James, what do do you make of all this?
1: Yeah, I think that Tim Keller himself has an unusual kind of presence as a Christian thinker on Twitter, that I think comes about through how deeply Augustinian um, Tim's instincts are in terms of how he positions himself towards others. So And I I call him Augustinian there to contrast him with, I guess, Augustine's own, like some of his own initial um, ideological opponents, the Manichaeans. So if you know the story of Augustine's life, um, before he became a Christian, um, before that he was like exploring Neoplatonism, but he went through a phase where he became a Manichaean and that was... A kind of religious philosophy worldview that separates everything into like binary oppositions um, light or dark good or bad and everything's very starkly divided and it's all about keeping yourself pure by making sure that you're not guilty by association with anything that's not within your camp and that's a, a way of thinking about the world and really it's a way of inhabiting the world like conducting yourself within it that was overturned profoundly in western culture by augustine um, by like on the Trinity, by his confessions, and that actually created a kind of Christianization of culture that becomes Western culture, where we're able to interact with one another across all kinds of um, like differences and outlook. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of like a basic idea of um, reconciliation, forgiveness, um, grace that manages to bridge a lot of those divides and how people relate to one another. But one of the features of, of the, the emergence of a post-Christian version of Western culture is that we've become a lot more Manichean. We've returned to what was there before Augustine, and we have this very kind of polarized binary view of, of how to interact with one another, which is to push those who are different as far away from ourselves as we can. And when we have to come close to them, we have to shout unclean, unclean, and make sure that people know that we are not on their side. And that all might sound very abstract, okay? But in concrete terms, what this means for people in the West today is that Western people very often now find it very difficult to invoke like the names of people who aren't in the same camp as them socially, without first drawing a bunch of caveats and saying, "I fundamentally disagree with this person. Their views are reprehensible. Just so you know, you know, unclean, unclean." And then you you need to go through all of that kind of preamble before you can have any kind of proximity to that person. And we do this in our, you know, attempts at friendship across divides. Um, Politicians do it all the time. Everything's about reputation management so that you're not kind of guilty by association with, with people who who don't see the world like you do. And that's a very Manichean way of acting. Okay. And Tim does not do that, uh, especially on Twitter. He has this very like Augustinian presence where he'll recommend books, all the time um, without first saying, obviously I disagree with like, points A, B and C and this writer gets all of these things wrong and here are the good points. Instead, he just recommends books in good faith um, without having to draw all these caveats and set up who are his uh, friends and his enemies and so on. And I think that a lot of the, like, the aggravation that he, that he gets uh, on Twitter and a lot of the trolling as well comes about through the fact that his Augustinian presence makes him an awkward one. Um, And and Twitter, which is, at least in the secular West, Twitter is a very manichaean environment. So he he has an awkward presence there anyway, I think. And that's why he gets a lot of trolling um, because people just, he doesn't play their game and therefore he becomes their target. So in that environment anyway, then this article appears by James Wood that sets out to be very um, gracious, constructive, you know he's open about Keller's influence on his life and so on it reaches a fairly stark kind of conclusion as well in portraying him as yesterday's man someone who doesn't have a message that's worth carrying on with today in terms of how we integrate Christianity and politics or Christianity and culture but it's the first things article itself is a lot more nuanced than the forum that it has gone viral on which is Twitter. And instead, the, the the net effect of the article for a lot of people has been this kind of bizarre like, cancellation of Tim Keller. Um, it made me think a bit of, you know, the, the farewell Rob Bell um, moment online from a few years ago, it's almost like a farewell Tim Kell uh, um, moment on Twitter, which just for me is an indictment on how Twitter works. That even if you try and launch a new, more nuanced piece like that, um, it's yeah, the dynamics of how this has worked on Twitter have been have been really kind of predictable, but disappointingly bizarre as well.
2: Yeah, as I read that piece, James, and then I also read David French's response to it, and then finally Rod Dreyer's response to the whole debacle, you know, every time I read Rod Dreyer, even though I appreciate some of the things that he says in the Benedict Option, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like I'm reading this jeremiah from a apocalyptic wasteland that is the west and i can't help to think to myself you know just beyond the whole debacle that that when i read wood and Dreher, especially in these two pieces this is this is writing from a standpoint of remembering or at least having a memory of right um christians in a place of acceptance and even power in the context of the west and sort of lamenting that that's gone and now there's a limiting environment here there's a hostility to Christianity. But then when I read them, it's like, okay, let's zoom out a little bit. And, and from my own perspective, especially from ministry in Indonesia, I'm coming in a context where we are not able to get a new denominational license to start a new church. We're not able to marry uh, interreligiously and in the context like in Jakarta, Indonesia, right? Even though it's a very cosmopolitan sort of place, you still have to prove that you're of one religion uh, for you to, to get married there. Um, we had a Christian governor who was imprisoned for blaspheming the Quran, right? And this is supposedly a pluralist secularist country because of the Islamic population. You know, Christianity just has all of these legal barriers for it to actually be able to spread. And, and to me, it's like I, I can say unilaterally, and I think with, with great confidence, I have way more confidence in my freedoms as a Christian in the West, in the context like America even, right? Than I did in Jakarta, Indonesia. So to me, it's like, the only reason why, and, and maybe I'm speculating a little bit here, that there's this tone of grief, there's this tone of, of everything is so bad and everything is so doomsday-like, it's because of this memory of this cultural power. And I think um, because we're kind of losing that power now, we gotta lament in this sort of way. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, there's this also charge that, that Keller is sort of optimistic that if you're just sweet enough, the other people, if you're just kind enough, winsome enough to them, you'll you win them over. And that reminds me as well of the charge against Abraham Kuyper and Neo Calvinism that <clears throat> Neo Calvinism has this optimistic, sanguine hope that if we were just, you know, winsome enough, if we can just talk about the Christian worldview enough, the whole world would be captivated by it and then we would win them over for Christ. And I actually argued in a reflection on ABC Religion, uh, I wrote an op ed on the imprisonment of the governor Ahok at the time. Again, a Christian Indonesian guy. I think he kind of fell off the, the hoop after after he was in prison. But, but at the time, anyway, I was reflecting upon Christian principles for public policy. And I was saying to myself, actually, if you follow the principles of neo-Calvinism, it's not so that you might win the world over by being nice or winsome or by being communicating a Christian worldview or something like that. But it's actually about an affirmation of God's common grace, which means God is patient with unbelief. And if God is patient with unbelief, that necessarily means that Christians are not going to be lord over culture in this current redemptive historical order. And if that's the case, then our job in a sort of political philosophy is to make room for everyone else on the table, even if it means limiting our own influence. And that's okay, because we are pilgrims on the way, we are here in a in a in an outpost in the wilderness, we're waiting for Christ's Lordship to return. and And so uh, we're okay with not being the major cultural power. Now, Kuiper tried his best with you know organic influences, journalism, and just as a person, things like that, and, and as a prime minister, but the whole philosophy is a philosophy of common grace for public philosophy, political uh, philosophy. And I think that creates a sort of limiting power for neo-Calvinism and for Christianity in the, in the public sphere. So to me, it's like, when I'm reading these pieces, like what is the strategy now? Survival or, you know, if you want to win culture over, let's get over Tim Keller and Woods piece, Peace, right? And I was thinking to myself, well, America's really not that bad. Let's zoom out a little bit. And um, that's just coming from an immigrant's perspective. And, and secondly, you know, it's, um, the, the task has never been cultural dominion. And so, if it's about what would win it best, it's not Tim Keller's way anymore. To me, it's like Tim Keller is, I think, ways the faithful way, just my own perspective. It's not necessarily the most pragmatic way, but it's the way we're supposed to be doing this.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful, Gray. And p- part of what you're saying there at the end is, is to simply say that the third way ism, which is a is a fuzzy concept, but I think the way Keller uses it and the way, uh, and it it's pointing to a, an older idea uh, is just simply to ask the question, what does it mean to be biblical and to approach the world from the perspective of the Bible in an antithetical culture? And uh, I think that that leads to a question that I have for both of you that is really at the heart of all this, the way I see it at least. And I think that's, should we approach the world and our relationship to the world Primarily through the questions and demands of evangelism?
1: So, when I listen to that question, Corey, and I try to think about it in terms of Christianity as I grew up in it in a Scottish context, um, where evangelism is very direct, you know, it's confronting someone in a very narrow sense with. You know a direct set of claims about their sinfulness their need to repent um, that there is salvation through trusting in jesus um you could think of, about evangelism there in that very narrow sense but what there wasn't a lot of in the kind of you know broad kind of evangelical background in the uk that i grew up in was something that is the backdrop to all of that evangelism which is what I think I find really compelling about Tim Keller, actually, and and also what I find compelling and find compelling about neo Calvinism, which is that alongside the like the very like the tip of the arrow of event of evangelism, that there's something that's much bigger around it, which is um, a demonstration of like the catholicity of Christianity across the whole of life. That there's also Uh, an argument for Christianity that is what Christianity itself looks like in all of life, Um, that it's truly a Catholic faith and um, how this ties in with the third way question and I guess we should probably explain for listeners what the third way question is as well. So the third way it issue, I mean, it's a, it's a bit complex. As Corey said, it's a bit fuzzy. And I think in this debate, especially online, different people are using it in different ways. But it's the idea that if you're talking about countries that have like very binary political choices, like in America between Democrats and Republicans, or in the UK between Labour and Conservative, in Scotland it's a bit different because we have more parties, so the, they're morally not very distinguishable. Um, or like Australian politics is very binary as well. So the third way ism, um, whatever that means is a broad ism for listeners who don't know is that idea that that Christianity isn't coterminous with like either or, and instead Christianity will require you to think outside the, the box of, of just the two options, right? Um, and that Christianity will require you to critique both and you won't find a perfect set of answers in either side of a binary choice. So anyway, I was saying that this kind of the idea that Christianity is a faith for all of life, I think, is connected to why you would want to have a third a third way, something beyond a binary in a in a culture war or in a basic political opposition. Um, and that is just the idea that Christianity does a- apply to all of life. Um, so it's broad, it's capacious. Its its vision is as broad as the whole scope of life, like the entire terrain of human existence. You know, in Kuiper's terms, every square inch. Um, and because of that, then the, the, what it, what it means to think about being Christian, to express all of life on the basis of Christian thinking, Christian principles, um, that is something that. I think when when you really take that to heart, it makes like package deal politics in Western secular environments, much less comfortable as a place to rest. In fact, everywhere you go, you find you don't quite fit in Um, and you'll find aspects in whichever party you're in that that just are not easily reconcilable with the Christian faith. So you see that the Christian faith, even if if it's if you can see kind of haphazard um, kind of reflections of it in different parts of whatever political package deal you're exploring, you won't find the whole thing. So the kingdom of God is still something that's different to our, you know, the, the options that are available on our political menu. Um, and I think you know some of the critiques of of the idea of thinking in third ways like this, like, like in the Wood article, um, he thinks. Well, he says that's one of the problems with third way thinking is that um, it leads to a kind of moral, um, um, a kind of moral equal weighting. So you might find like different failings in one side of on one side of the political binary to another. Yeah. So you know you might find one side of the political um, choice that um, defends the lives of the unborn, but is weaker on defending the lives of um you know immigrants or refugees or something like that whereas on the other side they're big on on uh, the integrity of the life of the the immigrant or the refugee or the asylum seeker but they have a very different track record on the the integrity and the value of the life of the unborn human and wood's piece implies that there's a kind of slippery slope within third way thinking that it just treats all of these as though all sins are are equally weighted um I don't think that's the case at all, or at least it's it's like there's nothing inherent within the bigger theological picture that needs someone who th- sees third way thinking as, as compelling to treat all sins as equal. In fact, if you do that, then I think you've like the, the issue is a theological one that's the, 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 the there are there are problems in your doctrine of sin and certainly the, the reform tradition. Does not treat all sins as equal. So thinking outside the binary doesn't mean that you treat everything with with equivalence. Um, but beyond that, you know, to come back to this, like the earlier discussion on Augustine, I think at least within Neo Calvinism, you see this really clearly in JH Bavink, But I think earlier figures see see like this as well. I think Herman does. I think Kuiper does. Um, Augustine is the architect of of Western culture. Um, in helping us see that well he overturns everything that was there before and then he he helps us see that actually sin is disorder it's the disorder of of a good creation and that means that human societies are fundamentally disordered as well there's no there's no proper harmony of all of the different diverse elements that should be there and then i think that shapes neo-calvinists to see western culture as it develops as different differently disordered iterations of actually the the legacy of Augustine. So you have it's kind of like when we interviewed Alex saying a few episodes ago and he had this great line there that what happened in the modern West wasn't that the modern West completely abandoned Christianity and moved on to something different. Instead, it secularized Christianity and it disordered Christianity's sensibilities and started to play them against each other so if you're a third way kind of augustinian neo-calvinist thinker when you look at binary political systems that are all in one way or another playing with very disordered kind of mutant versions of a christian heritage um you won't find a a properly christian reorganization of those things within within secular political parties or political packages so yeah, uh, I guess I, I just I, I, I don't find the argument for um, um, the kind of you know, equal weighting of things um, across the binary options as, as compelling. Actually, I think that third way thinking has no need to do that at all.
2: Yeah, right. And I think what's what's rooted underneath that, James, is, is this idea that Christianity and culture are distinct, that Christianity is not tetherable to one particular culture that Christianity always transcends every culture, but it will find because of common grace and general revelation, points of contact in any culture that defines itself. And it's rooted in the teachings of Paul, the book of Acts, Jew-Gentile relations being overcome by Christ's lordship. You know, you're not a Jew first or a Gentile first, but you're a Christian first. And you could be a Christian who happens to be Jewish, or you could be a Christian that happens to be Greek or Roman or whatever else, right? And so suddenly now, Christianity can manifest itself in any culture and it's not identifiable with any any one culture or even any one subculture. And so I think sometimes, you know, one of the reasons why when you think about deconstruction and that kind of movement here today is why it's so attractive to people is because they miss the fact that Christianity is different from their particular subculture. They confuse Christianity with their subculture. And to think that when they're leaving that subculture, it also means for them that they must leave Christianity to where there's the Christianity of the South or the Christianity of a particular location. Right. And they're, they're thinking of themselves like, Hey, okay, this is what Christianity is with a capital C. And so I got to leave it now. And when I think about Indonesia as well, in my context there and reflecting on my time of ministry there, like that kind of distinction between Christianity and culture is not really grasped yet by, by many in Jakarta, because the main sort of ideological opponents for many Christian political leaders and Christian people in power is Islam, of course, the, the hegemony of Islam and and folk Islam as well. Um, there does not see that distinction between religion and culture, and so when you take a look at the Islamic political parties and also the um, the kind of work that that Muslim marketplace leaders are doing, they're you know investing. In Islamic movies, and you would see movies about a Korean visiting visiting Indonesia, and then meeting a, a a faithful Islamic woman, and suddenly he's attracted to Islam, and that's the whole movie, right? And that's it's it's almost like you're watching, you know, sort of the hallmark version of Christian movies in in the states, where here's this very secular person, he meets a godly Christian woman, and suddenly he becomes converted, and that's the whole movie, and that's supposed to be incredibly appealing. But that's that's really what's going on here. And, and, and I mean the Constant Jakarta and there's there's Islamic soap operas where a woman's going through, you know, some kind of hardship or a guy's going through some kind of hardship, and the the rest of the episode is them monologuing over shalat, right? And um, there's Islamic bookstores, Islamic coffee shops, things like that. And a lot of the work of the Islamic political parties is to limit the growth of Christian churches. But then when Christians are also in power, they're doing the same thing. There's Christian soap operas that they want to instill, they're not praying over a monologue in the shalat, but they're monologuing over, you know, uh, in a scene in the church or something like that. Uh, now, those those are, are more rare, but but what's going on is that that subtly what's being communicated as Christianity is being tethered to one particular ideology in that sort of context. And because most of the Christian political leaders and marketplace leaders that are in power are Chinese, there's a sort of suspicion in the broader native Indonesians looking at that and saying you're not talking to us about christianity you're talking to us about chinese family principles being embedded and communicated in your political ideology in your soap operas in your attempts to communicate through the media and when you talk take, you know take a look at these christian universities and christian schools they're censoring books because we're a christian school we only read christian stuff here and so there's a manichaean like you say james view of reality where it's Christianity against everything else. And when you take a look at that version of Christianity, it's really Chinese-Indonesian Christianity. And I think what's going on in the States too, is sometimes perhaps is this tethering of Christianity to one subculture within America, just as it's happened in Jakarta, Indonesia. And I think what what Christianity in terms of biblical Christianity and, and neo-Calvinistic Christianity forces us to reckon with is the separation, but possible connection between Christianity and a particular culture.
0: I think what the third way idea is really doing is just simply asking how do I take the biblical worldview and the and the contents of the Bible itself and its prescriptions and apply them in the current sphere, and that I think ought to always lead us to understand that no political order or political party in the current world will ever be coterminous with uh, the biblical concepts, like James mentioned earlier, and in that way, it's a really Fairly uncontroversial claim, because we believe in the kingdom of God that is yet to come, and in the now and not yet. Uh, it's not possible to completely be attached uh, holistically to a political party or an organization, or to agree with everything that everybody else is saying. But I guess I, I think about this question from the perspective of being a pastor, and you know how I want, in the midst of all this, the, the people of the body of Christ to relate. To the world and, and to the culture that's outside of them. And I mean, to, to speak about it simplistically, I mean, the, the Bible is relatively uh, simple, I think, and that's that our primary calling is to be uh, theologically mindful, putting on the minds of Christ before any other type of mindset, that when we become Christians, we become people on mission first, and that evangelism does become a primary means through which we want to approach the world. Uh, and to broaden it out from evangelism, it's probably more helpful to say uh, to be missional, to have a mission mindset, the mindset of witness, uh, which is the, to put on the mind of Christ. And, you know, if you if you break the world down into two spheres, uh, one being people and the other being cultural institutions, we have a mission to both. Uh, we have a mission to people, which is to speak the truth and love. And so uh, coming and saying that this winsome approach, quote unquote, is ah uh, confrontational is is false. It's false. And the way Keller talks about it, it's the it's false in the way the neo-Calvinist tradition has talked about it. Right. Um, rather, the question is, where do we locate the confrontation? And the confrontation has got to be most of the time and, and most importantly, uh, the stumbling block that is the cross before anything else. If we come with the confrontation of the truth, but we do it in a way that's contextually appropriate and full of love. I mean, you think of first Peter, of Peter's call to always give an answer for the hope that's within you and to do it with gentleness and respect is the quality he offers, the the virtue. Uh that's the winsomeness mindset, I think, that that Keller has often portrayed, and that we're talking about here, I think of even the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 2, that says that an elder needs to be well thought of by the outsiders, by people that are not within the Christian church, that are in the public, and this is in the Greco-Roman world, this is in Ephesus, you know, this is where um, they're worshiping Artemis uh, uh, through all sorts of absolutely sinful ways, um, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which is a stronghold of pagan thought in the in, in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and, and then when you think about our relationship to the world and its institutions and its cultural spheres, again, back to Timothy, um, we're to be, uh, well, Paul, Paul says very clearly that things can be made holy by the word of God in prayer, that food can, that's been sacrificed to idols, that institutions are called to image God just like humans are, that the office of the king is at its best when it's imaging the Lord, and that all of these spheres and institutions, the Christian has to approach hoping to be in the world, in the midst of them, but not morally of them, in order to make them holy again. And that requires winsomeness. It requires an approach that is both confrontational and full of neighbor love and love of enemy at the very same time. And so, yeah, I think, you know, That that's a a simple way of approaching it, but um, the third way I do think is fundamentally asking the question: What is a biblical model in the current order? Uh, And so all sorts of questions follow on from that. One of those questions that I want to ask you guys as well is: uh, In the midst of this debate, one of the things that's being talked about, assumed uh, James Wood is assuming this, and that's that Aaron Renn's concept of um, the negative world since, and I can't remember the exact designations in terms of the years, but the last decade or so we've entered into the space of the negative world where opposition to Christianity in the Western world is at its height. And so our Christ and culture relationship, the relationship of the Christian to the political order has to change. It can't be this third way because the antithesis is so much stronger. Uh, I want to ask what you guys make of that. If you accept that way of understanding the past 30 years. my The initial thought I have just to, to get us started is just to say, and again, this takes me right back to what I was just talking about, about just being biblical. What does the Bible say to us about our present context is um, how different is the negative world, quote unquote, from the Greco-Roman context into which Christianity first entered? I mean, obviously, it's different in so many ways, but um, it was quite a negative world. And so even in the midst of that, I, I just want to simply ask, like, what has changed uh, that speaking the truth in love has has had to become something different?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Corey. Um, you know, I guess I, I want to um, say as well that, you know, James Wood's piece is not saying, let's give up on winsomeness because now it's time to be nasty, right? He's not saying, Yeah, that. right, exactly. Yeah, of but course. The point I was trying to make at the very beginning about Twitter as a terrible forum for this whole conversation is that at one level, it doesn't really matter that that's not what he said. That's what how people, the controls trolls on Twitter who are now trying to cancel Keller, are saying. We now live in this negative frame or this negative period. Therefore, it's time to you know fight fire with fire and they're nasty to us. We will be nasty to them. And winsomeness is bankrupt because I guess in the way that this debate spreads online, winsomeness is tied to the previous in Aaron Wren's. And again, whether this is what Aaron Wren is arguing is a different matter. You know, the reception of the debate isn't the same as the original argument. So the way that this is being received by a lot of people online is that um, the idea of being winsomeness of being winsome at all is seen as a kind of failed strategy that went with a previous part of the history in North America, where people saw Christianity as neither good nor bad, therefore all you have to do is be extra nice, and then they will be receptive. Um, so yeah, I want to nuance that as well, um, for you know James Wood's sake as well. But I think, you know, I discovered... Um, keller and also neo-calvinism originally or in the same kind of time i'm not american um discovered all of this here in radically secular western europe which in is, is secular in a distinct kind of way to the united states um but you know i, I discovered all of this in a period where you, you, i mean you could you could describe it as that kind of negative um culture where people assume that Christianity is is bad rather than assume that it's neutral or good. And there's that kind of suspicion towards it in the first place um, for for a lot of people. And I guess certainly the the way that I first discovered um, Keller's approach, um, which I thought, again, was just was like an embodiment of First Peter 315, that you're prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you and that you do it with gentleness and respect. that that's the context that I discovered him in and um so I think that the the debate that we're talking about is a very intra-American one as well so I look on it with a bit of distance, yes yes as a Scot and as a European I think that this is this is a very in-house thing amongst um, North Americans I don't know I guess Gray you've kind of made similar comments um in the podcast thinking from an Indonesian perspective um but, you know, the question of, of how differently the the negative culture towards Christianity or the negative posture is how we should understand that in relation to the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, I think that we have to be careful not to, like, we can be too apocalyptic in, in the West. Um, we enjoy uh, lavish freedoms that so many people in the world don't um, Certainly Christianity is, has lost a lot of the social dominance that it had um, if you were to go back four or five decades in Scotland. Um, but, you know, I have I have cousins who grew up in the Middle East and uh, who growing up. I remember one of one of them once asked me if I got to go to Sunday school every week. And when I told him, yes, he said I was the luckiest boy in the world because they they couldn't go to church at all ever um, unless they came back to Scotland on holiday. Um, there are so many places in the world today in 2021 where um, it calls for a different kind of perspective on the freedoms that we enjoy and that's not to say that it's like the west the secular west is not an exceedingly difficult place to practice you know theologically conservative orthodox christianity out in the open it's a constant kind of negotiation but we do that within a particular kind of context where we, in the UK, um, you have belief as a legally protected characteristic. Um, And that's a freedom that, again, so many people in the world don't enjoy. Um, When I was working in the Netherlands, I had I have a friend who at that point was studying there um, who was from India and um, A comment he once made to me about his initial, I guess, puzzlement trying to understand how Christians in the secular West bemoaned um, a lot about secularization. He said that you know, in in India, Christians are actually asking for things to be made more secular because. we don't have the same kind of basic freedoms that you have here. We would really like we would like to have a lot of the freedoms that you have, but uh, but we have Hindu nationalism and so on that that really limits the freedom that we have to do things that Christians in the West take for granted, despite a lot of the challenges that come with secularization. So, um, so I think that you know yeah. we're not thrown to the lions um, in any kind of um, literal sense we do have really difficult issues to work through with Christianity as a public faith um, but we also do that in a particular um, historical context where there's a lot that we have to to lean on in terms of Christian tradition but also a lot of the fruits of modernity actually give us um, freedom of belief and expression um, they're freedoms that, that the church needs to defend um, like I find it really troubling in across the West in general how um, religious freedom is seen as quite dispensable by a lot of secular Westerners very much in Scotland I think for a lot of people in the, in North America as well um, and that's really troubling for everyone actually not just people who want to exercise freedom to be publicly religious but the freedom of religious expression is itself the expression of the other core freedoms of liberal democracy, like freedom of belief, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. If you have all of those freedoms that we all need to have to live in a free society, you should have freedom of religious expression. And if freedom of religious expression is diluted, it means that actually there's something really troubling that affects everyone. That's happened a little bit um, before that, that and our eyes off the ball on that front. So, you know thinking in a third way kind of perspective doesn't mean that you're oblivious to those things. In fact, I think it, it works really well with um, with that kind of perspective.
2: Yeah, and I think, Corey, your point about, you know, the Greco-Roman world being a very negative world and how that actually doesn't impact the way in which we are supposed to be communicating the truth and love. I mean, consider just, you know, revisit Acts 26 and Paul's defense before Agrippa, and I have it right there open in front of me here. And consider the way in which he talks to this, you know, non-Christian leader about the persecution that he's receiving from the Jews. He says that I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. And then over and over again, he says, you know, oh, King, in this connection, I have been, been disobedient, blah, 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 right? I can't imagine, you know, if you're if you're sort of speaking in this sort of apocalyptic overtones, you know, just consider any president in the United States. It doesn't have to be this current president. But let's say you really don't like the policies he's doing. I can't imagine them talking in this way i don't know if, if that's the sort of tone that that twitter is communicating how would you speak to your leaders can you still pray for them can you still speak in this way that paul is exemplifying for us in acts 26 so i think just reading it back to the bible that that at the end of the day it's precisely because the the early church accepted the the sort of persecution coming their way and even martyrdom coming their way while they remained gentle that's exactly what I think was attractive to the Greco-Roman world, and that is exactly what transformed it through the leavening powers of Christianity in the long run. And that yeah. continues in 2022, not just in 2021.
1: Yeah, sorry, I've I've yet to adjust to the shift to 2022. I know that we're now in yeah. May, but I'll get yeah. there. Yeah, September, October, I'll, I will get the year.
2: And then suddenly it's 2023. It's just uh, the months yeah. go by quickly, but the days are long.
1: It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard. Yeah, you know when you, we start to think about this in terms of the Bible. Um, when I was reading through the Class Schilder reader that Marinus edited, um, there's a there's a really beautiful section in the reader by Schilder on paradox in the New Testament that I thought was just wonderful. And what he highlights there is that the, the concept of paradox in the New Testament is something that gets, uh, I guess, just flattened out by how this gets translated in that Dutch context but also in English as well and the specific instance that Schilder writes about is it's in Luke's Gospel and it's where human beings see this man Jesus Christ forgiving sins and in the English translation we have that the the people praised God because saying we have seen remarkable things but actually the, the Greek text says we have seen paradoxical things. And Schilder uses this to argue that actually part of the compelling power of Christianity is precisely the notion of paradox. It enables you to hold together things that don't seem to fit well alongside one another, and yet you need them both in order to have a a livable philosophy. Um, So the Bible itself actually equips us to hold together paradox. And if you don't have a concept of paradox, instead, what you end up with is dualism that there are these two things and i must choose one of the two and i can't have them both and again to go back to this augustinian way of thinking um augustine normalizes the notion of paradox in how western people would go on to think like if you read through the confessions all the way through it's you know how can you ask me for to give you my life when you own everything Uh, how praying to god um, how can i ask you to fill me when you already fill everything and yet i must ask you to fill me Um, So Augustine normalizes paradox and actually makes dualistic binary divisions um, abnormal for a really long phase in Western culture. But that dualistic way of thinking that rejects paradox has become much more normal in modernity. So there's there's a really great article on the third way question that that just came out on the Gospel Coalition's Australian uh, website by Chris Watkin it's called um, the third way is dead long live the third way and one of the things that he brings up there is that modernity itself is fundamentally structured around dualisms Um, and you see this in all kinds of like modern debates um, around like free will or causality um, that you have lots of thinkers on all these kinds of issues who um i guess the, the more the the more deeply you you drink the Kool-Aid of the enlightenment the more dualistically inclined you can become so it's actually a very secular way of thinking in a modern context to to be very dualistic um and the point that that, that chris watkin makes is that the modernity is fundamentally structured by dualisms in the first place and we see this still all around us in terms of questions about power dynamics um the oppressed versus the oppressor um all that kind of stuff and the the proletariat and the bourgeoisie i mean these dualisms are all around us and the argument that he makes is that unless you have some kind of a third way uh, approach shall you think about this then you actually just get locked in the dualisms and i think that the, the the third way is is actually a kind of modern recovery of paradox um it's it's a way of lifting us out of um again binary questions that tend to get um, you know, split split up and annexed by either sides of political divides. Um, and that's, again, another feature of, of third way thinking that I find really, really useful as a Christian in a very hostile environment. Um, and I guess, you know, another part of that article by Chris Watkin that's really worthwhile is just the, his recognition that the third way is an umbrella term. And that if, if, if you don't approach it with a lot of nuance in the first place, then the discussion is kind of meaningless and worthwhile.
2: Yeah, there's so many doctrinal concepts that's needed for this third way to kind of go forward, right? There's antithesis, common grace, there's general revelation, noetic effects of sin, right? And so there's a host, host of implications for that subversive fulfillment, or contradictory fulfillment as the way in which we engage with culture and contextualization. So I think all this is to say is there's so many other concepts that needs to be developed and to be explored. So go, go read Chris Watkins' forthcoming book, Biblical Critical Theory. It's wonderful. It's a long, long book, but it's, it's really going to be worth your time. It's taking through the whole narrative of scripture and saying that the undercurrents of all of the cultural things that we see around us is actually in Revelation. So please go ahead and and take a look at that book. And um, it's really well worth your time. Probably the best book on Christianity and culture that's going to come out for a while. For a while.
0: This has been a fantastic discussion. We can close it by saying that Christ has come to askew all dualisms and long live the third way. The first is a Bob quote. The second is a Watkin quote. Uh, guys, I've really enjoyed it with you today. And uh, if you're listening, we're really thankful to have you. Please do uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and give us a rating as well so that other people can find our podcast. We'd love to hear from you. We are on social media. Please reach out to us on social media. You can email the Grace and Common Podcast at gmail.com. We've had a few questions recently through the email, and we have heard those and we've received those. One is uh, if we would provide an entry-level reading list for how to get started reading in Neo-Calvinism. And so we'll make sure on our next show to, to get into some of those questions and answer them perhaps at the beginning before we dig into anything else. But until next time, thanks for listening, and this is Grace in Common.